only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. We'll be reading from Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. It's on page 948 in the Bibles in your pew. Romans 13, starting verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to, to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord, we pray that we would hear your word aright. We pray that our hearts would be opened by your Holy Spirit. We think of Lydia, of whom it was said that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. We read of those men on the road to Emmaus saying, uh, of their time with the Lord Jesus, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was speaking to us? Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts, that to some degree, in some way, Lord, our hearts would burn within us over the glories of God, the beauty of Christ, the hope of eternal life in the midst of this dark world. We ask this for the glory of Jesus, the good of your people. Amen. Because the, uh, of the date of today, I thought originally that I would break from Romans and do a sermon just devoted to the topic of 9-11. But then the more I thought about this passage, I thought, well, this is maybe a passage I would have picked, you know, to preach. So we're able to stick with Romans, I think, and I hope that can connect the two things. I, uh, I want us to think about... 9-11 is kind of a symbol of, uh, in some ways, the darkness that we face in this world. Probably the, the largest, darkest symbol that our nation has ever seen. One of the darkest ones. And though we celebrate the resilience that has been shown in America politically and in other ways, uh, the resilience of people who've lost loved ones and... There's a sense in which we as America stand, uh, and in some ways, of course, this reflects the glory of God, I believe, to show that we will not be overcome by evil. But there is a deeper, wider, eternal perspective that we must have that this passage calls us to, that can be applied in any and every situation of our lives and certainly needs to be applied 
uh, on this 10th anniversary as we think of this awful event 10 years ago. There are so many stories. Uh, you probably have seen some things on TV, read some things uh, even this week as we'll continue to do. I will in the weeks to come. One is uh, one of the most noble and amazing, of course, has to do with the ladder company number six. As they were in the North Tower on the 27th floor going up when they felt the rumble of the South Tower falling, crumbling. At that point, they got the message that they were to come down because everyone knew that the North Tower, now they understood the North Tower was likely to fall as well. So on their way down, they found a group of, say, 50 civilians on a particular floor huddled down. Uh, and they began to herd them out and get them out. And as they were all coming down about the fourth floor, uh, they were holding back for this one 60-year-old grandmother named Josephine who was uh, just could barely move. She was so exhausted. And on the fourth floor, Josephine said, I just can't go on anymore. I just can't. Just leave me. Y'all have got to save yourself. Just leave me. And of course, you know, firemen wouldn't do that. And so seven firemen were there to help get her down. And as they were between the fourth and the second floor, as some of you know the story, the North Tower crumbled. And what happened was this little section of the stairwell, as one of the firemen described it, became, we were encapsulated in this little box of concrete. And he said, it became our life raft. And they were alive after the crumbling of it. And it was pitch dark. They couldn't see anything. Uh, They began to call. It was 45 minutes before anyone ever, they could make contact. And as they were trying to describe where they were, it got kind of comical. And uh, Captain Jonas uh, laughed a little bit when he said, I was telling them where we are. We're in the World Trade Center, Tower 1, the North Tower. And then he says this on the phone. After the tower collapsed, you enter through the glass doors, make a right, the first stairway on the left, stairway B, between floors two and four. <laughs> Detail. And of course, he says he had no idea that the building didn't, wasn't standing. He said, uh, in kind of his New York accent, he said, as I said that, I heard a fireman say, where's the North Tower? <laughs> you know, like, he's asking us to, Well, it was 2.30 before they got them out, but there were eight of them, counting Josephine. She survived as well. Eight of the only 16 that survived uh, the collapse of the towers. An amazing, amazing story. And they call her their guardian angel because if she hadn't stopped, they wouldn't have been preserved. They would have been killed. And she, of course, looks to them as uh, her guardian angels. Another... Incredibly touching story, uh, Dave and Marion Fontana. Dave was a, a member of the prestigious Fire Hall Number One and uh, Firehouse Number One, and he really just was all about you know being a firefighter, and, and that's the kind of guy you need. He named his son Aiden, which means little fire. Okay, and he he planned for them. They got married. Years before this, on September 11, because he said, I always want to be able to say, I got married on 9 11. 
because I hear that number all the time. It's a 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. And he just wanted that to mark even his marriage, you know, kind of define what I'm about is saving people. And so he was, had just served, had just uh, been on a 24-hour shift and showed it, shows marked on his calendar, day off with Marion. And she was waiting in a coffee shop for him to come to meet her after his shift. When, of course, 8.47 or so, that's when the tower got hit. And she, he, he died among the other 343 uh, firemen. And she said, you know, 9-11 now... Um, she in her book, A Widow's Walk, she says, uh, 9-11 really is the best day of my life because I was married and it was the worst day of my life because he was killed on that day. This was their eighth anniversary. And she described it this way. Said, uh, they say, the, the commentator says, they say that time covers all pain or eliminates all pain. She said, no. She said, it's like someone described it you have a brick in your pocket. You're just always walking with this brick in your pocket the rest of your life. And I think that's a great analogy for what Paul describes here because we are longing for that day of light that he describes. It's really the day of the Lord, the day when Christ comes and remakes the whole earth. When the curse is finally removed in this world, the curse is removed from our bodies. Our bodies, if we're here when he comes, our bodies are absolutely renewed at that point. If we've died, our spirits come and our bodies are raised and made glorious like Christ's body. And everything evil, everything uh, harmful, everything of loss in this world is taken away at that point. We long for that day. But until then... We are in the midst of darkness, but on the cusp, on the edge of the light that has already broken in. And that's what we're going to talk about. Living on the edge of light and darkness. And I think this uh, 10th anniversary is a great time to be thinking about that. Because this may not be the worst thing that ever happens to America in our year, even in our lifetime. This may be the first of many terrible things. There may be things around the corner that we cannot conceive of. How are we going to live? How do we live in darkness and yet live in the light that is already broken in upon us? Well, here Paul begins this section. And really, I think a better translation instead of besides this would be as several... uh, translations have, in all of this, okay, in all of this that I have said, and really they say, this takes back to even chapter 12, when he begins to present your bodies as a holy sacrifice, and don't be conformed to this world. In fact, this is a return, this is a little closed section, because he begins by saying, don't be conformed to this age The understanding is you belong to a new age. And he ends this section where he began. Don't conform your ways to this world of darkness, but already live as those who belong to the day. Because the day has broken in and we're on the cusp between this darkness and light. 
And so he says, all of these things that I've said primarily, uh, as we've seen, talking about love, both in the verses right before and then in the uh, two chapters, he's just been underscoring all the ways that love should be lived out. And he's basically saying, and it's all the more urgent to live this way. It's all the more urgent to live this love out in our life because of the time in which we live. But knowing, knowing this critical hour, the idea is it is time to do something. The alarm is going off. It's time to get up. The flight is leaving in one hour. You've got to get now. If you, get out now if you're going to get onto that plane. That's the feel of this passage. It's time to wake up, he says. And remember in the Near East, uh, as in the ancient world, you didn't have lights, it, you know, you, you couldn't work at night, really. It's so dark. Unlike if you see, say, uh, England from, the, from a satellite, how beautiful, you know, all the yellow lights everywhere. It's stunning. Well, there was darkness over the earth, <laughs> primarily at that point at night. And so, also, the heat was so bad in the midday, you just had to really get up and get going at the beginning of dawn. Just the first light, you're already ready and you're making the most of it. That's the feel here. Everybody knew what this was like. Everybody knew you had to be up and going uh, in the first light of day. And so he's using that to say, this is the time that we are living in. We are at the point between darkness and light. And we're to live as though that final day has arrived And the presence of Christ is already here. It's like this new world that's being born. And we are to live in conformity to this new world that has already been born. We're already a part of it. It's just not fully here yet. But we're a part of that. We're no longer a part of this, you see. We're of the day. We're not of the night. In the sister passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, that's basically what Paul says. You're not of the night. You're of the day. You don't belong to the darkness. You belong to the light. And so our lives are already illumined, as Cranfield says, by the brightness of the coming day. That's amazing. Your life in Christ has already been illumined by this day that has come and is coming. And so you are the sparks of light. You are the stars, as Paul describes it in Philippians 2, in the midst of the darkness. Amazing. If, if, if we could see a satellite view of believers, you would be those beautiful, stunning yellow lights in all the darkness. There's one of mine. There's one of mine. There's one of mine. There's one of mine. They're already illumined by the day that you can see is dawning. They're already lit up with that day, the power of that day, the beauty of that day. I think of what it would be like. This, this is a good picture, perhaps, of, of where we stand. Say, I'm uh, looking at Google Earth for the first time. I've never seen it before. There was a day, you know, where I was just like, I can't believe this. And imagine me looking early one morning and seeing that the, the dawn which you can see as it, as it sweeps across the earth, you know, through this view. Imagine me seeing that and just bursting in 
Kay was up late and she was sick and she's trying to sleep late. And I just burst in and I say, honey, you won't believe it. We're right on the border between light and dark on Google Earth. And she says, and you're right on the border between death and life on planet Earth, right? It's like, you idiot. You, oh, excuse me, children. You're not supposed to use those words. Uh, which she's never said that, but, you know, that's what you'd want to say. But you think that point, that point of light and day, that, that edge, that's where Paul says we are. We're on that edge between light and darkness. And so we need to picture ourselves there. And it helps because it, we, we can't deny the fact that we're in the darkness and that we, we suffer. We suffer our own sin. The brick is in our pocket. We long to be free. Paul talks about this. He says, I'm not there yet, but I long to be there. I long to be free. I long to be uh, done with this body of sin. I long to be conformed to Christ. There's a brick in my pocket. And yet, we are already inflamed with the glory of that day. And so... What's happened is this, the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Christ has begun the final chapter of history, okay? 2,000 years ago. It doesn't really matter how long. This is the last chapter of history. There's no other chapter, but the chapter after Christ is accomplished and, and then is going to end everything with his second coming. And however long, this is the last chapter. And that's why... This, the time is short. It's as though we're down slope now. There's no returning to what happened before. And so that day is regarded as always near, always close. There's kind of the sense of a ship that's arriving at port, you know, entering the port. Or the, when you feel the plane beginning its descent, you know. Or maybe when you drive into the Metroplex and think, I'm almost home. That's the feel of this passage. He says that's how we should all feel about the place that we find ourselves in history. <clears throat> so we need to wake up, wake up from this dark world from which we've been delivered. This dark world that is full of death and rejection, disobedience to God. We must not be a part of any of that attitude even as we live in the midst of it, even as we shine light into it, this world that is rushing to judgment. But this new day, the new world, has already broken in. And that's the only world that will be, is this new world. He says, don't be a part of the darkness. Don't right here at the time of dawn say, roll over and say, I'm going to be a part of the darkness that is headed toward rejection. Uh, headed toward the rejection and judgment of God himself. And so he, he even speaks of it, doesn't he, as the salvation, the rescue from disaster is nearer to us than when we first believed. So we, it's getting closer and closer and closer. And imagine being not realizing this as we're going to see and not arming ourselves appropriately, realizing the critical time in which we live. Uh, because we are obviously in this cosmic war in the midst of darkness and light. You imagine a troop of soldiers in full battle gear opening up fire on a bunch of men stumbling, groggy and drunk out of their tents in their skivvies, you know. And I'm telling you, that a lot of times is a picture of believers 
as we go in our day, you know, spiritually that unprepared, spiritually that unarmed, because we're not aware, as he says, here, we know the time. We know that we're right at the dawning of the new age. And one has said this, faith is nothing but living in the light of what is to come. That's almost the full definition of faith. Living in the light of what is coming in the providence of God. Well, this first part, verses, verse 11 through the first part of 12, is just stating the facts, stating the reality. And then, in the rest of it, he gives these commands. It, here's the reality. How should we live in this reality? And there are really three uh, contrasts here. Uh, he says, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. That's one. Secondly, walk as we should in the daytime, not in orgies, sexual immorality, etc. And then finally, the contrast, put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision for the flesh. Really, he's saying the same thing three times. He's saying it in different ways. So you group the, the one together that we're to cast off the works of darkness. They're enumerated in verse 13. And then he says, again, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. So the darkness uh, is, he, he gives the explanation for what he's talking about in the next two verses. These works of darkness are the same thing as when he began earlier in chapter 12 to say, don't be conformed to this world. Now, you may know that uh, when Augustine was uh, deeply moved by his desire to break from his former life, he was in a garden of a friend in Milan, and he was weeping and praying and weeping, and he heard a child's voice, as you may know, tole lege, tole lege, which means take up and read, take up and read. And he looked down and there was a, a scroll. He opened the scroll and he read verses 13 and 14. And he was converted through that. And of course, Western culture was transformed. So these two verses have had a pretty important place in Western culture. Arguably the most important, one of the most certainly in, uh, theologians in, in Christendom with Augustine. Well, he, he speaks of the things that are naturally associated with darkness. Uh, things that are generally kept hidden. Orgies and drunkenness and immorality. Uh, kind of the, the wild parties of the emperors were probably part of the background to this. Katy Perry's song Friday Night. Great description right here. Or... Uh, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Well, that's not because you're going to Las Vegas to play golf. You're doing a little shopping. You know, uh, you're going to do some exercise every morning, go to bed early, and you want to keep that private. Obviously, it's because every kind of immorality may happen there, and we invite you to come and do it because it's so neat. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Well, except for the judgment of God, maybe, you know. Like they say, there, safe sex, there's no safe sex outside of marriage. I don't care what you do, there's no safe sex because God judges immorality, right? And these things, these things of darkness are just, just part of what is associated with the darkness. Interesting that quarreling and jealousy, which do mark churches so often, are just herded right in with the rest of them. 
Oh, yeah, inquiring and jealousy. Not as a lower level, but on the same level as these other things that are to be left in Las Vegas. It's people that are fighting with each other and quarreling with each other. And so <clears throat> he, it, it's the antithesis of light. This is the tendency of all darkness, the character of darkness. The point is to participate in the darkness is to go the way of these deeds. It's to participate in a similar rebellion, a similar desire, a similar lack of self-control, and a similar harm to other people, which all of these involve. All of these are the antithesis uh, to love. And that's why he talks about the provision of flesh. Make no provision for flesh, he says there in verse 14. This is the indicator of, of human nature that is weak, that's vulnerable to sin, that's, that's hostile to God. This part of us that's so oriented toward death rather than life. And in this overlap, in this edge between darkness and light. We don't share our, our Lord's physical body. We don't, we don't share His complete freedom. We have a brick in our pocket. We're struggling against sin. But we are living in the light in the midst of the darkness. And we have a strength to fight against it. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this statement, make no provision. Don't give it the time of day. Don't give it fantasies, contemplation, daydreams, plans. Don't give it any room in your life. Don't feed it. Don't nurse it. Don't tend it. Make no provision. See, no provision for the flesh that you would give in to its desires. This, this is just like Jesus' prayer, isn't it? That he tells us to pray. <clears throat> Deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation. The, the humility of that prayer, oh Lord, keep me even from being tempted. I'm so weak. Keep me from being tempted. I have a brick in my pocket. <laughs> I'm so weak, oh Lord. Deliver me from the evil one. I cannot stand up to him. Deliver me. Keep me from it. So there's this whole idea here of casting off, not walking in these things, make no provision. But then the positive side of, of these imperatives, of putting on the armor, perhaps a better translation, the weapons of life, light, as it is translated many times. And walking uh, as we should in the daytime, because we are part of the daytime. Let's live uh, in that daytime. Let's begin the works of the day and no longer the works of night and put on, as he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we are putting on this armor of light and it should be connected so closely with the context. The true armor of light is love itself, you see. The weapons that we wield are the weapons of love. This immediately preceding context is all about love. That this is the thing that should dominate. You owe everyone this love. This fulfills the law. <clears throat> and so put on this weapon, this armor. It's really the whole point in the end. It's the whole point when he talks about this in Ephesians and Colossians of putting off and putting on. As you read it, you, you see you're putting off all that is not love and you're putting on the full panoply of love. All the different aspects of love. Patience and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and forgiving and, and being united with one another and all of these things. 
Even in Ephesians, after talking about putting on the new man, he, he, he especially stresses that we're to walk in love as Jesus Christ has loved us. So to put on this new man, as he says in Colossians, above all of these things, put on love. And so we must equip ourselves, armor ourselves. And if we don't armor ourselves, we have no hope. We have no strength. We have no motivation unless actively we're, we're doing this. And I want to talk a little bit about what that, that means. But to see that the works of darkness are doing harm to people. So I'm casting off all that is not love. And living out love in every part of my life, realizing this is my dignity, this is my glory, this is what it means to be a part of the day. This defines the kingdom when it comes in its fullness in this world. This is my strength and magnificence. This is our defense and the defense we offer all others against the invasion and destruction of evil. It's that we practice love. There is no other. And even as he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Christ himself say? Here's the new commandment. As I have loved you, you love one another. He's the definition of love. He's the manifestation, as John says. And the idea in the New Testament is we really didn't know love until it was shown us through Jesus Christ. So to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is above all else to put on that character of, of love. But many times when they use a title like this, the first title is, is the one that's underlined. It's the one that's underscored. So put on him as Lord, that you will be Lord over me and that you will be Lord over all the evil and darkness that comes against me. Oh, I put you on Lord Jesus as my protector, as the only one who can provide for me, the only one who can sustain me, the only one that can guard me. I take you as my Lord to depend on him, to cling to him, to expect him to do good things in our lives, to count on him. It's, it's a calling upon the presence and power of Jesus as Lord of all things to be your defense against evil. And I wonder for myself, I wonder for you, is this the way we're starting out our days? You know, putting on the Lord Jesus, crying out to him, realizing I'm in a cosmic war. I'm right here on the cusp of darkness and light. And putting on the Lord Jesus means then to embrace him again and again. It means that in loyalty and obedience, we give ourselves to him. He's the one that we already belong to, but we continue to give ourselves to him so that his character can be made known in everything that we do. I wish we had time to look at some of the other passages. I'll refer you to them. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21, especially 1 Thessalonians 5 that talk about this same thing of the darkness and light or of how critical it is in the midst of ungodliness that we look to the coming of Christ. James 5 says, Be patient, establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against each other. See? 
or 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So there's this idea when he, he says the day is at hand, he's really talking about the day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The final day that ushers in the kingdom, that ushers in the new heavens and the earth. He says, it is, in fact, the, the verb tense says, it's already here. Just like earlier, he says, we already are glorified to, to, to make it certain. It's, it's certain. It's going to happen. I love that section, that little moment in Neil Simon's Goodbye Girl when Richard Dreyfus has just bombed terribly in a play. And he's talking about it, and he says, I was putrid, capital P, capital U, capital Trid. You know, just a great little moment. <clears throat> yeah, I've got thousands of those running around, so you don't want to know what's in there. But, <clears throat> but here when we say Day of the Lord, it's like capital D, capital A, capital Y, capital of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his day from beginning to end. It is owned by him. It is a day in which he manifests himself. It is a day in which he glorifies himself. It is a day in which his magnificence, his salvation, his righteousness is made known. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of rescue. It is totally the Lord Jesus that has the day, that has the landscape. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're waiting for that day. We're looking forward to that day. But we already are experiencing the power and the blessing of that day. It's interesting when Paul in Thessalonians talks about putting on armor and helmet. He talks about faith and love and hope. Those th- that great triad. Trusting Hoping, And what's the other thing in that context of faith and hope? Love. It's like he says in Galatians 5, love, faith works through love. Faith issues itself in love. So as we're putting ourselves in his hands and we recklessly live for his glory, knowing the day is at hand and it defines us and it is coming, then we give ourselves away. I love what uh, Alford says in his commentary. On the certainty of the event, our faith is grounded. By the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness aroused. We're certain of it. So our faith is grounded, but we don't know when it is. So our watchfulness is aroused. Our hope is stimulated as we look for it. It could be now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. We're always in that realm. We're always in that attitude that it's ever drawing closer and closer. And especially, uh, we feel that there's this sense in which we're on the last lap, you see. We're, we're, we're in the final few minutes. You know, I think of Mississippi State yesterday. They had 10 seconds and they were on the one yard line. It's like, it's all coming down to this. And if they score, they tie the game. If they don't, they, look, they lose and they lost, okay? But, the whole thing. That's the sense of this passage. It's all down to the final minutes. That's where you're living. Everything you do counts. And it's so important, again, to end where we began, to think about the darkness and what we face, especially when you think of 
how some of the stories uh, turned out in that uh, in that terrible story. That is, for instance, uh, Sean and Beverly Ecker. He worked on the 98th floor, Sean did. And she got a call from him, found, and, and he was on the 105th floor. And he was trying to, he's saying, what's wrong? What's going on? What's happening? And she, she tried to describe it for him. And he was trying to get to the roof, but the door was locked. And as they said, they, it wouldn't have helped to be on the roof because uh, helicopters would have exploded if they had tried to, to rescue him. And so he, he spoke to her in the final minutes and then they both said goodbye. And she said he calmed her even in those final minutes. And just right after that, the whole building collapsed. Then, in 2009, going to a celebration of what would have been his 58th birthday, her plane goes down. And you think, what else could happen? What else could happen? Josephine, who made it out, is passed away this past January. And it reminds me of what uh, Piper had on his blog yesterday. And he includes that great section from C.S. Lewis on the weight of glory, talking about death. And this is where I I think it's so important for us because these things help us see death. And he includes this because Lewis is writing in the light of World War II. Okay, And he says, there's no question of death or life for any of us, only a question of this death or that. So it's not a question of, you're going to live or you're going to die? Uh, you're going to die. Okay, That's it. Simple. You're going to die. There's no other question. Whether it's a bullet now or cancer later. What does war do, it, uh, do to death? It doesn't make it more frequent because 100% of us die. So death is no more frequent. We're all going to die. And then he talks about different things. Does it do this? Does it do that? He says, but it does do this. It forces us to remember it. It forces us to remember it. And that's one thing that 9-11 does. It forces us to remember, that's me. Maybe a different way, maybe a different manner. But that's me. All schemes of happiness centered in this world are always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now, he says in World War II, the the stupidest of us knows. We unmistakably see the sort of universe in which we've all along been living and must come to terms with. And so, even in the midst, if ten times this happens to us, if unimaginable horror breaks out in this world and upon us, we must live in the light of those who are headed for resurrection, that nothing can stop it. And as he says earlier, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. 9-11 reminds us, war reminds us, the death of a loved one reminds us, we have no hope except the resurrection of Christ. May we live in that glorious hope. And as we hope and trust in Him, may every breath we breathe be one of seeking to give ourselves away in love as God has loved us in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would open up our hearts to receive the things that are said in this text. 
we pray, O Lord, that you would root us in absolute faith, that we are of the light. We are not a part of the darkness. As Paul says, you were the darkness. You weren't just a part of the dark. You were the darkness, he says in Ephesians 5. But now you are sons of the light. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've made us sons of the light. May we walk worthy of that calling, shining forth in a broken and hurt world, in a, in a dying world, in a world where people do not know the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, give us grace that our hope will be founded in nothing other than Christ and the coming day of His uh, making all things new. We pray this in His name. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?